So as Linda comes to read the scripture this morning, a reminder that these are familiar words that we normally hear around Christmas time. And you notice that the last hymn is Joy to the World. But, but hear, this word, hear these words, look at the relationship, and see if you can find some kind of hidden details about the differences between these two. Today's scripture is from the first chapter of, Ver- of Luke, verses 39 through 45 and 56 through 58. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? As soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown this great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Initially, I will share with you that I wasn't going to be preaching this Sunday, and, and really thrilled to be able to do this um, particularly given these two, and they were they were the next pair of women that I was going to preach on had I changed my mind about some of the others. But it's, it's incredible, this story, and as I said, Laura, as you, as you talked about the research piece of this, you know, I've heard the story of Mary and Elizabeth my whole life. I've heard sermons on Mary. Very few times have I ever heard a sermon on Elizabeth. And I'm going to stick close to my notes because it's Communion Sunday. And just a couple of heads up. We're going to put the offering plates on two chairs in the back ushers. Let's just take care of that, you know, when we get there. So that when you come forward for communion, just please put your offering in the offering plates. And then I'm going to incorporate the prayer time into uh, what's going to happen right at the end of communion. Uh, I know some of you are going to the hydro races today. So I want to make sure that you're out of here in time. We shall overcome. I want that still ringing in your heads as, as I kind of venture down this path. Now. So here, let me, let me deal with Mary first. And, and again, I, th- these things are astounding to me, the differences and in how incredibly gifted these writers are, particularly Luke, as he explains the relationship between these two. Mary is probably the most familiar. She was no doubt a young teen, probably 13 or 14 years old, with a maturity well beyond her years. She is no doubt still living with her parents as we hear these stories, serving in a Jewish household as any young daughter would. And by the way, some things are going to be scrolling up here, and we're trying to get the lights down because I know they're kind of dim. Um, The differences that you'll see uh, between these two. Mary's role was simple. It was very straightforward. For example, she would tend the garden, wash clothes, gather water, prepare and cook parts of the meals, probably pluck the chickens for her family, and saw her future totally with those things in mind 
and nothing more. Their home was no doubt open, uh, not very large, maybe as large as the chancel area here, with uh, an open roof, and around the edges of the roof were sticks to provide shade in the heat of the sun of Nazareth. And it would be warm there. The bedroom, if there was one, would be divided by a half wall, probably made of wood, because Joseph was, well, probably made of wood, they're not married yet, made of wood, or even a mud-like stucco kind of thing, very small home, um, very tight-knit, and again, Mary's role in that home was uh, absolute and unwavering. She lived in a small town, which name is, thank you, Nazareth. This really wasn't a test, I just thought, you know, you knew that. So, um, <clears throat> Nazareth was anything but a wealthy town. It was not wealthy at all. The only reason that it was as successful as it was was because of the building that was going on four to six miles away at a huge building project called Sepphoris, uh, which Herod was building in honor of Caesar to try and solidify the political well-being between this area and Rome. I mean, this, it's a small town. And like any small town, I don't know how many of you grew up in a small town. I've served in a small town. Everybody knows everything in a small town. And if they don't know it, they make it up. And so whatever happened in this small town was known by everyone. That's where Mary grew up. Mary probably didn't go to synagogue because women were not really welcome. Women were told that they had to stay outside. It would be like all the women looking through the windows out in the narthex. But we do know that she knew faith, that she had some kind of faith because of her response to what was coming next. Also, this is Galilee, which is in the north. Galilee was very much like the Pacific Northwest. Galilee was spiritual but not religious. The absolute polar opposite of what Jerusalem was, which many would say was religious but not spiritual. They looked at the laws of, of Judaism um, somewhat more like, I keep thinking of Pirates of the Caribbean and the pirate law, somewhat more like suggestions, that they were not strict adherent of that law and kind of interpreted them for their own kind of well-being and what worked for them. And so the relationship between Jerusalem and Galilee, which we see later in the Gospels, was tense. There was judgment. There was all kinds of things as those really pure Jews looked at those less pure Jews in Galilee, which included Nazareth. It's an amazing story. Um, Mary's, Mary's marriage had been arranged. You remember this part of the story from Christmas. And what that meant was money had been exchanged. Dowries had been exchanged. A legal contract had been signed, and Mary's family had made this deal with another family, the family of Joseph, for this marriage. They had not had the ceremony yet. That's what betrothed means. They are not married, but there's a legal contract binding these two to each other. And again, Mary being 13 or 14, Joseph was probably older, and, um, and the roles of those two were absolutely clear, particularly that Joseph was a carpenter. Carpenter, 
is probably a misnomer. He worked with stone, he worked with metal, he worked with wood. That's Mary. That's Mary. Now you have Elizabeth. Elizabeth is probably 80. Probably 80. She lives as the wife of a highly placed priest living in affluence on a hill probably overlooking Jerusalem, the largest city in Judea. Because Zechariah had to have readily, you know, readily accessible kind of to the temple, accessibility to the temple. What I want you to think about when you think of their home, okay, I've described Mary's home. Think of a really nice Italian villa overlooking the city with verandas and fans and a lot of servants. And that's probably what their home would look like. Elizabeth's role was not to cook. It wasn't to clean. That's what the servants were for. Elizabeth's role was to be the spouse, (laughs) sorry, honey, of a pastor. (laughs) And to be that, you know, kind of wonderful, joyous, exuberant kind of humble wife of a highly placed priest. She didn't have to do anything. Everything was taken care of by the salary that was provided by the temple and the temple taxes. Uh, The other difference between these two is their pregnancies. Both were seen as miraculous. One, because she was not married and should have been, Mary then should have been put to death. But because of the faithfulness of her husband, she was saved. But she had to travel 137 miles at nine months pregnant to give birth, not in the opulence of a home, but in the humblest of places, a cattle stall, with all of the things that happen in a cattle stall all around them. You can't get more humble and more challenging and more unsafe and unsanitary than that. That's where Mary's child was born. Dangerous. Elizabeth's pregnancy, also dangerous in a completely different way. Did I mention, oh friends, as I look around the congregation, she was 80. Somewhere around that age, she was so well beyond child-rearing years that the only way that this could have happened was as a miracle. But she was able to give birth in the comfort of her home with servants around her and physicians around her. And, I mean, there's nothing comfortable about giving birth, but at least she had the security of those around her. Mary, no. Probably the only person she had was her her husband, then husband, Joseph. Look at the opposite natures of these two, and yet, in the midst of it all, look at what happened. As happens so often in Scripture, it was the older, wealthier, more secure, who bowed to the younger, not secure, incredibly simple woman in Mary. And I love the picture on the front of your bulletins this morning. I even love this picture, this, this sculpture. But look at the picture on the front of the bulletin, and that's the feeling that we get when we think of this story of, of the baby leaping 
in the womb of Elizabeth as, as he hears the voice. But let's look at a couple other things here before we come to kind of the questions that I have for you this morning. Can you imagine the sacrifice of these women as they take on these roles with their children? Can you imagine then Elizabeth watching John head out into the desert and become what nobody wanted anyone to be, this really weird, strange, unusual, provocative, judgmental, finger-pointing individual who wore really weird clothes? Is this sounding familiar to anybody when you think about your, sh- your children? You know, I see in this day and age multiple piercings and a whole bunch of tattoos. He wore camel skin, which just stank. He ate bugs and dipped them in honey. Just yucky. I mean, just terrible stuff. And what, what defined him was his obnoxiousness. Where did he get that? What also defined him was that he practiced the will of God, believing that what he brought was a message that would transform not only the people that he baptized, but the whole of the community of faith. And he did it with absolute incredible passion. And guess what happened? Because of it, he was killed by the authorities. And by the way, the authorities who killed him included those who knew his father. Where did he get that depth of faith? I do not believe it was from Zechariah, given what we know about him. It had to have come from Elizabeth and that combination from God. John the Baptist, son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. The son of Mary and Joseph and God stayed home until he was 30. That never happens, (laughs) right? Stayed home until he was 30. Maybe he left for a little while and became a boomerang child and came back. But he was there and learned the art and craftsmanship from his father Joseph, but also no doubt served in Sepphoris as as a contractor, if you will. But also this, this man was like a sponge. He learned every kind of philosophy. I can't wait next year. I have this incredible book called Jesus and Plato and the combination of these two and their teaching. But look at what he did, and then, and then learned the craftsmanship, learned, learned when to go with the grain and learned when to go against the grain, other than John, who always went against the grain, and learned that there were things that you could do within that craftsmanship, including the dealing of humanity. He, unlike his cousin, was a healer. He, unlike his cousin, was a teacher. He, like his cousin, was also a prophet, but he dealt with it in a completely different way. And where did he learn that? We know nothing of Joseph's faith. We know tons of Mary's faith. And he probably learned it from Mary. So what do we learn from these two? Here's a couple things. The first is that within the diversity of these two, coming from completely opposite places. They created a community of support and love and grace. And we are called to do the same. Within the diversity that is this place, 
we are called to approach each other with the kind of love and grace that Elizabeth and Mary held for each other. And no matter what happened, they were there. There is one scholar who came back and said, there's no doubt but that Mary was there for the birth of Elizabeth's child to support her and to love her and encourage her. So that's one thing we need to learn from these two. Within that diversity, we can find love and grace. Other things that we can learn from these two is that it doesn't matter how old or how young you are. God can use you. God will use you. But here's the rub on that. Is we have to be willing to say yes to God. But even that's not quite enough. If you look at these two, both coming from different places, did either one of them really have to say yes? No. But within their differences, they both said yes to God and through them, because of their passion and acceptance, the world was transformed. Third, their approach always, always, always without exception turned back toward God. And it was one of the things that they taught their sons that we need to count on that source of strength and that source of power and that source of grace and forgiveness in order to accomplish what God is seeking to accomplish through us. We need to be humble. And finally, here are the, here are the words that I have to describe them. And we can put the questions up, Jim, if you will. Look at this. The consistency between these two women, here are some words that will describe that. Courage, tenacity, acceptance, humility, love in the midst of suffering, all defined by these two. And in the midst of it all, the love they carried for each other. And a reminder, they didn't try and stop their children from doing what they did. They taught them. They encouraged them. They supported them and continually sought to guide them. And it's what we seek to do with our children here and our youth and our young adults, to be those voices of encouragement and love and grace even when they go in a direction we may not want to support, but particularly if they're godly, particularly when they're godly, we need to support them. Let me close with this thought as we pray for communion. I watched in awe last Tuesday night as 70 young people, high school and college age, mostly high school age, transformed this sanctuary into a place of overwhelming talent and mystery and ministry as the Starfire Singers came and told the story of justice in the world. I may not have agreed with everything that they presented, but what I could not disagree with was the way in which they presented it, very much like a combination of Jesus and John the Baptist. And at the end, they asked about the offering and where the offering was going to go, and I, I, thought, of, I thought of Kara, 
who's coming home, I know that she's on a trip right now, but Kara Bennett, who's been, who spent her life after growing up here in kind of this amazingly somewhat secure location called Bellevue, and has spent, after graduating from Stanford, has spent most of her life now in Thailand working with the poor, trying to teach sustainable farming and had a dream a number of years ago to save the children of Myanmar who were crossing the river to flee the war and the ravages of war there. And guess what? Because of your generosity combined with her vision and the tenacity of this short little man with blue teeth named Panchai, a boarding house was built that now houses children who have fled the wars of Myanmar. That story has now been told to the children and the youth and the adults of Los Altos United Methodist Church, one of the wealthiest churches in United Methodist Churches in the nation. And they are going to take that farther and farther and farther and are now telling that story in their concerts. And in the small group who saw that on Tuesday night, $1,264 was raised, which will be incredible when you turn it into bot, which is the money there. It will be incredible the difference it will make in Grace Boarding House. As I said, what I see in us is the need for the combination that I saw in those kids on Tuesday night. That some of us are called toward that passion, the prophetic words that point us in the right direction, always pointing at Jesus, but doing it with incredible, overwhelming passion. And others of us who see ourselves as transformative healers. But the combination is what transforms the world, very much like Mary and Elizabeth who become, to some extent, the loaves and the fishes that you talked about last week, and very much like what this is. I mean, think about this, that on the night in which he was betrayed, the son of Mary, who had been a friend of the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, who had been killed for saying only the right things, was there sitting at the table on that night that he was betrayed, surrounded by friends, and even then became a voice of encouragement. And he said, This bread is my body, which will be broken for you and for many. And as often as you eat of it, as often as you eat of it, don't forget, the actions, the words, the healing, the passion in which I chose to live my life because you will be the next generation of this. And after the supper was over, he took the cup and after he blessed it, this cup of the new covenant, this cup that represented the way that Jesus chose to live his life sacrificially for others. So this is the cup of the new covenant and it will cost me my life. As often as you eat of this, remember, you too must live your lives with that kind of sacrificial understanding. 
so that others might be transformed. And we teach that kind of lifestyle to the next generation and the next and the next. And it's why we do this every month. We become the loaves and the fishes of Christ, spreading this good news to all. The body of Christ, broken for you. The cup of Christ, the cup of the new covenant in Christ's name, for you. And what does this do? What I ask of you as you come, think of the words that were sung and played. We have the opportunity to overcome hunger, to overcome poverty, to overcome hopelessness, to overcome those things presented by the two sons born of these women, Mary and Elizabeth. I invite those who are assisting to come forward.